Ladies, I'm Sarah Cho. And I'm Sam Collier. And today we are very lucky to have the guest with us, Micah Ariel James. She's a playwright, poet, performer, dramaturg, teaching artist, and arts administrator with particular interests in folk life, aging and memory studies, oral history, and restorative justice. Micah has a BA in playwriting from Columbia College, Chicago, and an MFA in theater arts playwriting from the University of Iowa. Micah, thanks for joining us on Beckett's Babies. Yeah, thanks for having me. We are so glad you're here, especially because Micah was one of our very first guests when um, we started Beckett's Babies six years ago. Yeah, Beckett's Babies um, 1.0. That's right, the original. <laughs> I, d- I want to listen to that interview, actually, because I'm very curious, because the timeline of it would be that, you know, where they say, where do you see yourself in five years, six years? Oh, whatever. right. Like, what did I say? I'm not that we I don't think we asked that question, but, you know, it'd be interesting to hear that. Yeah, yeah it's gone. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I tried not to lose them, but it was there was no way. It's okay. It's <laughs> It's probably better this way. <laughs> it, it will live on in our patchy memories. Um, well, so Micah, you're a playwright. And yeah. um, and since we're called Beckett's Babies and we're interested in babies, we like to start by asking, what was your earliest memory? Before you were a playwright, before theater, before you even probably – knew how to tie your shoes <laughs> or write a sentence. What was your first memory? My first memory, for sure one of my earliest memories. So I I was, I had one of those weird birthdays that meant that I was a year younger than a lot of my classmates. And so uh-huh. when I started preschool, I was two. And oh, wow. So, and I was tiny and I was, I was already going to be tiny, but then also I was two. And so I remember being in my, K3 class and sitting on my heels, which I carried on until third grade when my teacher put my shoes up on the board so that I would stop sitting on the backs of my of my <laughs> shoes. I used to crush them down, but I I have like I can see my K3 class and I can see having to sit on my heels because I was very small. Um, and I feel like I see that space. And then a second one, which I I don't know. K3, K4, something like that. I remember a fire drill happening and I pretended to be asleep and they had to carry me. It was nap time. (laughs) And like, I was fully awake. I definitely knew what was happening, but I was like, ha, this will be fun. And so, yeah, so they carried me out. You know, I I wonder if that's a really common experience because I remember being a little kid and pretending to be asleep (laughs) many times. Yeah, yeah. It's it's our first moment of control, isn't it? It's like, yeah, like I can do this thing, and I'm 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 smaller than everybody, but I have power over this very moment. Yeah, and and deception, you know, right? That you start to realize, oh, I can, I can lie without actually saying anything. Right, right. My preschool, I would those naps. Teacher would never wake me up, and I'm just always waking up alone. <laughs> I was like, what? Where is everybody? <laughs> They they just leave oh me gosh. and I'm like you know, everyone's in the playground and I'm like why was everyone over there and I'm still in Aww. here. That doesn't seem great. right. Great, I had great teachers. <laughs> <laughs> well, so and then Micah, how did you get into theater? 
What did you start writing plays as a small person? Or yeah, yes. So I started. I started writing fiction at like four, honestly, oh, wow. and I I still have some of them if you can believe it. Um, some of my wow. earliest stories, and yeah, when I was four and five, I would I would we had a typewriter, and then when we got the computer, I would just go down there and type out everything. Um, but my my mom says, so this is an earliest non-memory, but my mom tells me it's the case that when I was very little, when I was about to start preschool, that she had told me that when you go to school, they'll teach you how to write. And I went to school the first day and I came home and I was very upset because they had not taught <laughs> me how to write. Um, and so eventually, obviously, I, I, I think normal educational standards, I did learn how to write. And so in those early stages, I just wrote a whole bunch like I would I would I was reading early and I was writing early and I just had this need to to tell stories um I was like I was an observant kid all this is coming from my mother of course that I was that I didn't talk for a while um in those early stages that I just would kind of sit there and watch people and I was taking everything in so that when I started to write it was like whoa you have all this to say (laughs) even though I hardly said anything to people in person um, so that was kind of the, when I started writing. And then when I was, I went to the same school through eighth grade and then switched schools in ninth grade. And I had done track and cross country and hated it because I even now don't understand sports, like, like why I would put my time and <laughs> energy into it. And so at the the school that I went to the high school, it was like, you could either do sports or you could do theater or you know one of those extracurricular things and theater had been kind of a potential interest in general um i had i had tried to audition for some community sort of things um but my my middle school didn't really have it um mm-hmm. and so i just joined theater cuz the theater kids seemed kind of cool <laughs> and i started out acting and then i started taking playwriting classes that my high school was offering. And I wrote my first play when I was 14, which was a one act play called the grocery store dialogues. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And it was, it was, uh, I think it was maybe 10 scenes of, it's totally a style that I still quite appreciate apparently, but it's 10 scenes of these two person dialogues of people finding love in the grocery store. That sounds very Micah. <laughs> it's very Micah. It's it's very <laughs> on brand. Uh, and and what I discovered in high school was that what I really loved about fiction in the first place was the dialogue. Um, I I actually had always kind of found it a chore to to paint pictures or uh, like with with in fiction to to paint those images. Um, with description or to like really have these concrete images of characters in fiction. I hated that. I despised it. And I was like, oh, in theater, you don't have to do that. Although some people do, of course. Um, but if you if you take a minimalistic approach the way that I like to, you don't have to. You can just focus on the dialogue. And so I kind of ended up on this straight path after that. I had some really significant teachers and mentors who were like, oh, this is something that you have a knack for. And so I just kept getting passed on to the next place. I ended up moving to Florida. Uh, I grew up in North Carolina, but then ended up moving to Florida in high school, went to an arts high school, got to do some independent study and 
was writing plays that they then took to the Florida Theater Conference. Then I first went to college in California to study acting. And in the, so I graduated I early. Yeah. I graduated early from high school and was like, I'm, I want to be an actor. This is what I want. Theater is wonderful. I believe in the, it, the power of it. And so I went to California, but I went in January because I graduated mm-hmm. a semester early from high school and I felt okay about it. I, the program was fine, but in the summer I was working at a summer camp and I like, I, I, the way I remember it now, who knows if this is maybe a, a more dramatic version that I, I woke up one morning and I was like, no, I don't want to be an actor. I want to be a writer. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and and uh, I called my mom and I was like, what do you think about me transferring to another school? And she was like, let's get it figured out. And she started calling people to get transcripts and and she made it happen so that by the by the time August rolled around, I was in Chicago at Columbia. That is such starting a cool that program. story. Yeah. And I love that it was it all happened because you woke up one morning and you That's what that's what I, I think. Play, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's what I feel like might have been maybe kind of what happened. Yeah. I've had a lot of moments like that where I just wake up and I'm like, today I have to be a pastry <laughs> chef or like today I have to, you know, ride the train. Yeah. <laughs> like totally. So what drew you to theater writing plays and what do you think about plays like that you feel is different from any other form of yeah that you can't get from film or tv so I think it's I feel like I have had an interesting experience with theater because I considered myself a playwright for years before I ever saw like a a professional theater production actually um actually that's not entirely true I think I saw maybe one or two children's theater productions growing up but before I saw what I what I now know to be the the full potential of theater I was I was writing plays and felt drawn to theater for a couple of reasons uh I think one of them is the just the as a high school student who became a part of theater the community that I experienced was so special. And I don't know that it's unique in that no other art form can give you that, but theater to me still feels extremely, extremely special because the the collaboration that it takes to bring things to, uh, to fullness, there so much goes into it. And the people who are a part of it are really what make it. And, um, so I think, yeah, experiencing that was a, a big part of why theater. And then when I did get to the point of seeing a whole bunch of theater, which when I was in undergrad in Chicago, the the access to affordable as a student to affordable theater was there. Was, there's no comparison. I've, I've never experienced it again. Any given night, there are a billion shows going on, yeah. $5, $10, whatever, sometimes free um, if, if you know somebody who knows somebody, but just that that ability to see different shapes and sizes theater can be anything theater can look like film theater can can bring dance and music together and it's still theater um theater can be in a storefront with with an audience of 12 and theater can be a a broadway production and and i think that that's beautiful because i what i think theater has the potential to do is a is approach people where they are and open up 
dialogue, create conversations and different people have conversations in different ways. Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of times people who work in smaller theaters or, or um, who work even like me, I, I consider consider myself a minimalist, like I mentioned. Um, but I have such appreciation for Broadway and and like spectacle because that's getting people into spaces and having those conversations as well. And so I I just see what I do as as different, but totally in in relationship and in conversation with those things. Yeah, I love that. I think that's spot on. And and I'm glad you mentioned minimalism because I. I remember one of the conversations I had with you when we were at Iowa was about stage directions. Mm-hmm. And you said that, um, you know, when you put in a stage direction into a play, you don't put very many stage directions into a play. And so when you put one in, it's really important. And yeah. I think the specific example you gave was if you have, if you say a character eats an apple, <laughs> it's yeah. really important that that character eats an apple and not, um, I don't know, an orange right? or or it doesn't eat anything at all, you know? And, um, and I think, and this was in the context of talking about how directors have different approaches to new plays. Like some directors are used to working on plays where the stage directions um, are suggestions or there are many of them and they're meant to evoke a certain feeling, but the, spe- the specificity of the action is not as important. So, can you talk a little bit about your philosophy of stage directions and how you arrived at it? Yeah. So I mentioned collaboration earlier, and I, I still feel so strongly that theater is is a collaboration, that, that a healthy piece of theater comes from strong collaboration. That's really what I think. Um, and I think that that happens at every level and at every stage, such mm-hmm. that an actor is collaborating with a playwright, even if the actor and the playwright never meet, even if they never have a conversation. Mm-hmm. So the the space that I want to leave as a playwright is inviting the actors, the directors, the designers, all of that to actually be in conversation with the work. Now, I know that a lot of different theater artists have different approaches to that, specifically a lot of playwrights, but I, I actually don't think that any two productions should look exactly alike. I don't want that. I, I would like it to be this happens in this moment with these people and that's the result of it. Um, and so because of that, I, I feel the the importance of, of leaving stage directions loose mm-hmm. um, so that there are, like you were saying, that, that there are those specific things that they're important and, and the, the dialogue makes it clear why that stage direction is important. Right. But but the other things, the the movement of it can be done in collaboration, in conversation with the cast and with the director and all that stuff. Yeah. Like I think about settings, for example. Your plays, I think, are pretty spare in their discussion of what the stage should look like. I mean, so I, I think that that comes from that philosophy. And then I think that's also that's also maybe just me, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that that. When when I think of moments, I actually haven't even really thought about this. But when I when I when I have memories of things, I I don't often think about what the sky looked like or what the grass was. I can tell you who was there. I can tell you the like the sentiments of the moment. Maybe some of what was said. Um, but I I don't know that I find that 
as important for me as the playwright to put forth. Maybe that that it's important in a production, but I don't necessarily consider that my role. As long yeah. as as long as what is created doesn't isn't in uh, contrast to what I have put forth, which is a hard thing I have discovered in in moments of collaboration to be like, okay, do whatever you want. Wait, what are you doing? You know, so, <laughs> right. so actually right. actually finding that balance is tricky, but when when you do find good collaborators or when you do get to the point of I have created whatever I feel I've come to the the end of that creative process now do with it what you will and actually being comfortable with that do you have a specific um like a moment or in the rehearsal process like this ideas came to play yeah so in so four stories was the last production I had at Iowa um that was in new play festival and um, so it's this play where it it's four basically four scenes, but in in different universes. But all the the same ensemble is across all four of those scenes, and um, and that's at New Year's. It's at New Year's, yeah. So half of it takes place on New Year's Eve, and half of it takes place on New Year's Day. And um, in in the script. I have included nothing of uh, design or costuming, and that was a, a really big conversation when we, when it came to bringing on collaborators and figuring out what it could be. But what I found is I wasn't I wasn't too worried about that to the point of of needing to intervene or saying no, that's not what it's that that's that isn't what it should be. I was able to have those conversations because I felt comfortable with where the dialogue was and and what they were suggesting, what the designers were suggesting made sense for the universe that had been created. Um, I, I feel like that's a good example of it because um, mm-hmm. the, the, the scenes were so distinct and costuming ended up being so important. And one, some of the feedback that I got from the artists who came from the visiting playwrights and directors and all that stuff was this is great. You should put it into the dialogue or you should put it into the script. And, uh, I didn't. And even now I'm not sure if I should, because it feels important for that production, but in another production, why should it be bound by what happened in that production? I think that's something I'm still evolving Mm -hmm. on and still wrestling with. Mm -hmm. That the show could take other, or that the play could take other, shapes in other shows right right yeah because it's not film you know so it is meant to to be breathed differently life can be breathed into it differently and it looks different so so what does that mean about about making concrete decisions about things that aren't necessarily what I'm wrestling with in that script right that was such a beautiful show thanks (laughs) (laughs) um Micah, do you have a favorite playwright or a favorite play that you can point to as like a a guiding star that you love? This is interesting. <laughs> the way that I read plays, I mean, I, I for sure sit there sometimes and start at the beginning of a play and get to the end of a play. But when I'm working on a play and seeking plays for inspiration, I will often open to a page and then taken two pages of a play like two random pages of a play really yeah 
and then meditate on it. So, I mean, I don't, I don't have specific references here, but like there's a, there's a scene in uh, the clean house Mm -hmm. that has spoken. I don't, I can't tell you which scene it is, but that has spoken so much to me as I then go into my work. And I don't mean inspiration as in content. Basically when I'm reading plays in when I'm in a creative process, when I'm when I'm working on a new script and I'm reading a play, I want to convince myself that I can do anything, <laughs> that that there are no rules. And so I find myself just finding scripts where people have broken rules um, or or are just doing non-traditional things. Or um, like I remember when I was in when I was in grad school and I wanted to to write a play where the whole play was two people and it was nonlinear. And I just started searching everywhere for all the two person plays I could find. It it, it seems wild because of course anybody can write a two person play. That's a thing that's allowed. Um, But unless I see examples of people doing it and doing it differently, I have a hard time really landing in it and feeling confident in the, all right, I'm writing this two person play and it's, it's not, it's not going to be in order and anything can happen. It's like, let me see other people who made anything happen and I'm not going to do the same things that they're going to do, but I need, I just need to know I can do anything I want to do. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense to me because I've had that experience where I read or see a play that does something I didn't know was possible. And it's, it's so exciting to, to see somebody think rethinking the form. Um, and, and you're right. It's like, then I feel inspired to do my own thing. That's not the same thing, but is also something I didn't think was possible. Right. Um, I'm thinking of, the play Describe the Night by Rajiv Joseph, which is, um, it takes place over se- many, many decades of the 20th century in in Russia, um, the Soviet Union and Russia. And there's a moment where these two characters, the stage directions just say, like, they go to each other and they help each other age mm. years or something like that. I'm paraphrasing. Um, but you know, like they they make adjustments to each other's clothing and hair, and they age several decades, and then they do a scene as their older selves, and then they go back to each other and take each other back in time to their younger selves. And when I read that on the page, I was just astonished because it it opened up all these possibilities in my mind of you know what else could be done. Yeah, that's beautiful. It's really, yeah. Mm. I, I think you would like that play. Yeah. Well, um, Micah, what advice would you give to writers who have never written a play? If people are listening to this who, you know, don't know how to get started, do you have any tips for them? Well, I feel like my my traditional playwriting process works well for people who have never written a play before, which is that you just start writing that there's no prep or or at least so the way that i approach plays typically is that i land on this idea of something that i want to explore and it's just that general um like the one that i used to talk about toward the end of grad school a lot was rage i don't know that i've even written that rage play yet but that that i just i just land on something that i'm that i'm tossing around and 
it lives in my head for a while and um, I might create a playlist and I might like a, um, a music playlist and I might search articles in the news that, that relate to that. I actually really enjoy searching for articles that go way, way back. So maybe this is an idea too. So not contemporary articles, but looking through like the, the contemporary version of microfiche, which is like journals and things online that relate to what I'm interested in exploring because a lot of stuff has happened in, in the world and, and, and there's just, just so many things exist and I use all those things for inspiration. So I might compile all those things, but I don't outline. I, I, I was going to say I've never outlined. I have outlined and it's just not the way that I like to work. Instead, I like to start at the beginning, not necessarily the beginning of the play, but at the top of a, of a screen and just, and just write until I figure out where I'm going or until I figure out what I'm exploring or until, to be honest, I figure out which play this is. Cause I might have 12 different large concepts I'm interested in exploring. Um, and, and then when I put it on the page, I've, I have actually even gotten to the point of writing a whole play before I figured out what I was trying to figure out. Yeah. Um, and then I go, Oh, okay. That's what's happening here. And then, so it's in the rewriting that I might start trying to get a little bit more nuanced but if you've never written a play before, pick up a couple of plays, look at what they did, and then don't do those things or do them. But like, <laughs> you don't have to do those things, but just go like, okay, these two plays are very different. Here's a third way I can be different from these two plays. And just see what happens. I love that advice. Another thing that I do, and I'm not, I'm not sure when I started doing this, maybe it was in grad school, is I, I had this this thing where I would start projects and not finish them and just go on to the next thing. And I still have that thing, but a way that I sometimes am able to address it is by randomly making page counts for scenes and then writing until I get to that, until I get to a draft of a play. So I'll just be like, I'll be like, scene one is seven pages. Scene two is 12 pages. Scene three is nine pages, whatever that is to get to, you know, 82 pages, whatever it is. And that's how I write the first draft of a play. And you just choose numbers randomly? Yep. Wow. Yep. <laughs> and I do it till I get to the end of that scene. And then by the end of that, by that process, I've created a first draft of a play. Huh. And, it, and it just lives. Yeah. That's, this is so fun and refreshing to hear because I feel like I've been in so many writers groups where people would, you know, like, this play or this piece of writing you got reminds me of this play go to that play and see what they're doing and then maybe emulate it and copy them and then you'll be successful just like them right you know it's like it's like this like attitude I'm just so sick of it and then I get that feedback and I'm like okay it's good feedback that I could just it's there and I'll you know maybe I'll look take a peek and say what it is that they're doing what what is it about that piece of writing that's resonating with people that reminds me of it but then it it's just it's mm-hmm. so annoying. <laughs> it's so annoying. But like Micah, that you're just like don't <laughs> listen. <laughs> um, I have a question. So how how do you balance a day job yes. and writing? And I feel like that's something that a lot of writers kind of 
to struggle with. Yes. Yeah. That's a huge question. And I'm still struggling with it, still actively struggling with it. And what I find, so I, I, I work at a performing arts center. I work at Hancher, which is the performing arts center at the university of Iowa, which is where we all went to grad school together. Um, So just to be a little bit more specific here. um, And so my, my gig there is I'm the education manager. And so when we have artists come to town, I am responsible for connecting them to the community in a variety of ways, K through 12 class visits, um, university class visits, master classes, panel discussions, all that stuff, figuring out how to make the arts accessible to everybody. So I feel a little bit lucky in that my day job is definitely still in the universe of, of what I studied and what, uh, what is my passion. Um, and, and it also is another area of passion for me. Um, and so that, that's definitely special and something that I cherish, but it is still different and it is still separate from, uh, from writing a play or from being in a rehearsal room. And that is a hard thing to find how to balance, um, and some of it, some of the ability to balance comes from uh, being able to find other people who are in that situation and and being in conversation with those people and figuring out ways to act as uh, to, be, to, to be responsible to each other of being like, hey, did you work on that thing? And I've had moments of that. So I'm coming up on four years with with my organization. And I've had moments where I have had a sense of community uh, and been in this sort of steady writing process but then I've had moments of of severe artistic collaborative artistically collaborative drought I don't know how to say that but (laughs) um that that sort of sentiment Mm -hmm. um because the other tricky thing is when I do consider my work to be related um since since I do consider my work to be related to what I do and I still have that passion for it. I find myself still wanting to, you know, move up the ranks or increase my uh, my knowledge within my day job industry. And so, in this past year, it, to be specific again, in in 2018, I joined a lot of uh, committees and boards and like our the association of performing arts professionals is like the the big network of all the hanchers of all the different sizes and all the artists and all that stuff there's an annual convening in New York City every January and last year I joined the planning committee for that conference which gave me the opportunity to to really get really integrated with the whole world of arts presenting um and that's all incredibly exciting. And like I mentioned, some other boards and that's all, it's great. It's wonderful. And I still find myself longing for more time to write and longing to be in a rehearsal room. And my job also means that I have sometimes weird schedules because when an artist's here, when an artist is here, I'm, I'm on call. Um, I'm usually with the artist at all times. and, And if I'm not, I'm, I have to be available. So the idea of, then going into a rehearsal process while that's going on is also very difficult. And so I, I'm honest with myself in that I can only do what I can do, um, but but also maybe I could do more. And mm-hmm. I think I think community is going to be a big part of that. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's hard, isn't it? It's like, yeah, 
because you're you're right. I mean, you want to advance in your career, and sometimes it feels like that's working at cross purposes from advancing in your creative work. Yeah. Even though maybe that's maybe that's a false dichotomy. I mean, maybe they feed each other, but it. I think. I don't know. I think sometimes they feed each other, and sometimes they're they fight each other. Yeah. For for me anyway, um, I think when they feed each other. So earlier this week. I had a a company that is from Ireland came and did a piece of children's theater in our large hall. So it's 1,750 mostly students from all across the state because people, we have school groups coming in from an hour, an hour and a half away. And those moments are my favorite time. Like just the concept of seeing 1,700 children mostly look at, two people on a stage and be captivated by it. I'm like, theater can change (laughs) lives. Like I totally see it. And it's Mm -hmm. like those, that'll be a long day. And then I go home and I'm like, all right, I definitely want to write. I want to write right now. And then other times it's like a residency week. So when an artist is here in residence could easily become a 60 hour week and I'm just tired. I'm like, I can't, I can't do anything else. You know, at the same time, it's also like I said, the blessing of being in the industry that I'm in with my day job. I've also had really fantastic conversations with artists like Taylor Mack and Liz Lehrman. And the other day there was a, a master class with these fantastic opera singer singers, uh, Lawrence Brownlee and Eric Owens that like their master class, they, they're talking opera, but they're speaking theater, which I now actually consider opera theater. Um, and I'm I'm sitting here getting an education, you know, so to be in these spaces, I look for those moments of uh of learning. And the and the the biggest piece of advice that I get, either I get personally from conversations that I have on the podcast, which I have a podcast that I'll mention, um, Hantra Presents that that uh where we talk with artists, either I get those those bits of advice or I just observe these artists in conversation with students or or maybe just how they're living their lives is to always be a student. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm seeing some masters, like some some of the greatest people in their fields, some people who have played, you know, a, a hundred opera houses or been on some of the largest stage, stages or who have gotten the MacArthur Genius Award, multiple people, right? And And these are really phenomenal people who say, always be learning. Yeah. Like always be a student, always, you know, everything mm-hmm. has, has the potential to teach you something. And if those masters can say that, I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I'm not there yet. So like, I still have lots of learning to do. So yeah. So it's, it's definitely both. I, there are moments where it's, it's exhausting, but I also feel very, very fulfilled by what I do with that organization. So tell us more about your podcast, Micah. Yeah, so Hancher Presents, uh, I co-host it with my colleague, uh, who he's our public engagement coordinator, Chewy, um, and the two of us on a lot of the episodes, it's uh, it's us talking about all things arts presenting, which, so arts presenting is, is a concept in contrast to arts producing, so as the organization that we are, we present a lot of touring artists rather than making our own work at that uh, it, within our building. Mm-hmm. And um, so we talk, we do some behind the scenes conversations about what that looks like, what we talk to artists about what the touring life is like, 
I think as of right now, it's definitely something I don't want because it sounds very hard. And we talk about all things arts as well. So he's my, my co-host is a dancer. And because I'm a playwright, we, we also have this unique perspective in our conversations with all of these artists that I think they don't necessarily get to experience when they go to other places. People who, who have entered arts administration through more traditional arts administration paths or business paths. Um, I think I think we were able to add some unique perspective to that. So we have all sorts of conversations and, and some of them are really, really very good. So cool. <laughs> you should check that yeah, out. Yeah, I will. And it's called Hancher Presents. Yeah, definitely. Yep. Yep. Okay. Listeners, did you hear that? <laughs> you should check out that podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're uh, winding down, so it's time to move on to glistens. Sarah, do you want to go first? Oh, yeah. So I was going to say cornbread because I was learning how to make cornbread, <laughs> but now I suddenly remembered this crazy history that i just remembered um i was watching tv show bob's burgers you guys i've heard of it i haven't seen it (laughs) (laughs) it's it's, it's an adult animation i love it it's the one of the producers who um produced king of the hill i just love adult animation but there was this one episode they made this weird reference about an elephant called named topsy topsy you guys heard of Mm -mm. it So, and I was just like, this is a very weird reference that they're making right now. Who is Topsy, this elephant? And so I quickly did a a Google search and Topsy was this Asian elephant that's put to death at Coney Island, New York amusement park by electrocution in January 1903. And it was like whole, it was this, it was supposed to be this publicity stunt that um Edison Whoa. did Thomas Edison and like they executed this large a- animal right in front of people and I was just like what the heck is going on like what that can't like this actually happened in American history like they just killed an elephant and I was just just remember that and I went to the zoo this week and I saw an oh. elephant <laughs> yeah, that's such like, a sad wow. story <laughs> I'm sorry but <laughs> I just and I went from cornbread Elephant execution <laughs> zoo. <laughs> okay. But um yeah, I was just I just remember that this weird obscure And it was like a demonstration like, oh, of the I power of electricity? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think that was the main like objective wow. to that whole stunt. I'm wow, just, yeah. Ugh. Nineteen oh three. Michael, what about you? What's your glisten? So so I live in Iowa, so <laughs> Um, the weather's bad, uh, and <laughs> <laughs> the weather's it's pretty ridiculous, and I, I'm, I'm very weather sensitive anyway, so it was already going to be bad, but, uh, it's been nice this week. It, like, hit the 50s. Now, it did snow and leave a whole inch last night, but, <laughs> but before that, it was, like, 56 degrees on Thursday, Wednesday or Thursday or something. So that's that's my glisten of the week. Does it feel like you had a cruel, um, like, bait and switch? Yeah. <laughs> or, yeah. or can it you was... still enjoy the warmth <laughs> that you did experience? Yeah, no, it was hurtful. It was, uh... <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, feel, I feel like we're headed towards spring. It, it was, it felt, I mean, because we had those with wind chill negative 60 degree days um anything is better (laughs) 
you know, and, and so, uh. <laughs> so now that we're past that, it just, everybody feels so hopeful. I feel like I, I look into people's eyes and they're all like, spring's coming. <laughs> like, <laughs> so yeah, I, I'm, I'm ready for it very much so. Well, my lesson is a poem by W.S. Merwin, who died this week. He was 91, I think. Um, and it's called, It Is March. So maybe you'll hear something in here that, um, you can relate to based on your experience of weather. Not you so much, Sarah, although you went to the mountains yesterday. Okay. Okay. It is March. It is March and black dust falls out of the books. Soon I will be gone. The tall spirit who lodged here has left already. On the avenues, the colorless thread lies under old prices. When you look back, there is always the past even when it has vanished. But when you look forward with your dirty knuckles and the wingless bird on your shoulder, what can you write? The bitterness is still rising in the old mines. The fist is coming out of the egg, the thermometers out of the mouths of the corpses. At a certain height, the tails of the kites for a moment are covered with footsteps. Whatever I have to do has not yet begun. And that's a poem by W.S. Merwin about March. Loved it. Poetry will save us. I hope so. I think so. <laughs> well, thank you, Micah, for joining yeah, thank us. thank you for having me. On this fine yeah, thank day. you. It's always so great to hear fellow playwright people just yeah. talk. <laughs> and listeners, don't forget to check out that podcast, Hancher Presents for more from Micah Ariel Jane. Oh, and where can people find you? Um, they can find me uh on the internet. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I, Do you have a website? I mean, I'm. I don't have a website. That's that's a problem. That's a mistake, probably. Um, I'm on. I was gonna say my Twitter, but I hardly tweet. Once every year and a half, I think is my is my rate. Uh, but it's at Micah Ariel. If you want to go there. Um, Listeners, if you want to yeah. find Micah, just go to Iowa. What are you even doing with your life? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Go to no, Iowa. Go, Iowa. go to Hampshire <laughs> and find her and say hello. Yeah. Yeah. And see a show at Hampshire if you live exactly. yeah. in Iowa. All right. Thanks, Micah. Yep. Thank you. That was such a great conversation. I always like talking to Micah. Everything she said, I was just like nodding. I was like, yes, yes. This is her thinking is just so um atypical like i just feel like every playwright i've run into kind of we have the same thoughts and feelings about things but like she approaches it in a a different way that's not a little bit outside of playwriting just like a little bit more arts and thinking bigger about Mm -hmm. yeah and i love what she was saying about setting a page number and then writing oh my god um a scene that's that number of pages until she has a play. I'm going to borrow that idea. I love that. Oh, my gosh. That's such a good – I was like, who I was like, who thinks like this? Only Micah. <laughs> yeah, oh I know. God. I know. I love- she has such a unique perspective. Yeah. I want to – yeah, I'm going to steal that exercise. Because I feel like I'm I, – when it comes to writing, I just don't ever feel motivated. And then when she said it, it's like – that's like a game. Like if I – trick Mm -hmm. myself to thinking it's like a game then I was Mm -hmm. like okay I'm gonna I could do this (laughs) well and it's so much easier to say I'm gonna write 
nine pages, then I'm going to write 90 pages, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's that smaller chunks approach is probably yeah. really helpful. Sam, how are you feeling? I'm feeling inspired. Me how are too. you feeling, Sarah? I I just, I'm in this weird I feeling of calmness. <laughs> I'm just like, mm-hmm. I feel really, I'm in this nice zen mode, but I think it's because Advil has kicked in. (laughs) And talking to Micah. Uh, So yeah, before we end our show, I just want to, we want to personally want to thank our fellow friend and dramaturg, Allison Ruth, who was one of our recent guests on the show. She donated to support the show. Friends, family, every penny counts. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> Every donation helps us to keep this show going. So, because we're largely doing this for fun, right, Sam? That's exactly right, Sarah. We're doing this for, for fun. <laughs> but we also want to be a resource for all you theater makers out there. So, and we want to be thought, around for a long time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so every thoughts, comments, donation helps us keep going. So thank you, Allison Ruth. Uh, and if you haven't, please make sure to check out the episode that where she discusses her role as a dramaturg and, and just how dramaturg dramaturgy lends itself to directing. Yeah. And again, if you enjoyed what you heard, please share the episode to your friends, fellow playwrights. Follow us on social at Beckett's Babies. We're also on the World Wide Web, um, <laughs> www.beckettsbabies.com. So check out that episode to learn more about us, the show and helpful tools and playwriting exercises, all the fun stuff that we think you might enjoy. And if you have ideas for future episodes, we'd love to hear them. You can mm-hmm. contact us through that website. Yeah. And if you want to be a guest on our show, you're like, yeah. you know what, Sam, Sarah, I think I have something to say. That's that right. You haven't even said yet. If you're offended on. that we haven't asked you yet, then invite yourself to our party. Yeah. Join the party. Our party is ongoing. It's nonstop. <laughs> Well, it it stops after. It's gonna stop in a in a few seconds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thanks, guys. Thanks, everyone. Okay. Bye. Bye.